Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Science or Fiction podcast, the podcast that interviews researchers to separate the science from the fiction in news headlines. In this series, we're focusing on mental health. I'm your host, Catherine Bates. I'm a youth development researcher at King's College London, and this is the Science or Fiction podcast. First, a content warning. In this episode, we discuss eating disorders and mental health issues, including depression, anxiety, and suicide. If you're affected by any of the issues discussed, we've included resources on our website, www.scienceorfiction.co.uk. Also, just to note that we are not talking about individual cases of mental health or other issues. Instead, we are talking about the research in general and what the evidence shows. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about eating disorders. Is there evidence behind the claim that eating disorders have increased since the COVID-19 pandemic? Let's find out. Eating disorders most often occur in young people aged 15 to 25 years. They can be extremely dangerous for young people. Those with anorexia have a mortality rate six times higher than young people without anorexia. It's recently been argued that eating disorders have become more common since the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's currently unclear why that might be the case and who is most affected. Although the research field is yet to come to a conclusion, the findings are frequently reported by the news. This is often on digital platforms with short articles and catchy headlines. In this format, details of the research are lost. We need to know more about the research findings to make our own conclusions and decide for ourselves what action to take. In this episode of the Science or Fiction podcast, I'm interviewing researcher Ulrika Schmidt to get some answers. Before we introduce our guest, let's hear a few of the headlines. The COVID-19 pandemic increased eating disorders among young people, but the signs aren't what parents might expect. The conversation, November 2021. Doctors warn of a tsunami of pandemic eating disorders. The Guardian, February 2022. So I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Ulrika Schmidt. Hi, Ulrika. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good, thank you. Looking forward to this. Great. Thanks for being here today. Um, so before we start, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? I'm Professor of Eating Disorders, and I'm also a psychiatrist in the Eating Disorders Unit at the Maudsley Hospital. Um, I particularly um, am interested in early intervention and prevention of eating disorders and do a lot of research on um, how we can develop earlier treatments and better treatments for young people when they first develop. Um, eating problems. Brilliant. So you have uh, are doing a mixture of the research and also clinical on hand practice yes. as well. Yeah. So I mentioned anorexia in my introduction, but that comes under the umbrella of eating disorders. So what else can be included in that, and how might eating disorders be defined? So eating disorders. Uh, the term is an umbrella term and it encompasses a group of different um, disorders. What they all have in common is that they are driven by a person being unhappy about their weight, shape, eating or appearance. And this then results in changes the person makes to their eating and their weight. And that can be under eating, but also can end up with people then 
overeating, it ends up with people doing all sorts of other things to meddle with their weight and eating, things that can be quite dangerous or can really impact your health negatively, such as exercising excessively or trying to get rid of food that you have eaten in some ways. And we have anorexia nervosa, which people know quite a lot about, which is talked about the most, which um, people are most aware of because it's a very visible disorder. But we also have people who are at average weight or who are um, at higher rates with um, very distressing eating disorders where episodes of overeating, binge eating are very much part of the picture. So this is bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. And then we, there's also a whole group of eating disorders which don't fit into one of these three categories, but which have a sort of mixture of symptoms, but are very distressing to people and where people also need help. It's kind of way more complicated than we might assume. So for example, as someone that is not an expert in this topic, if you ask me to describe someone with an eating disorder, I would probably think of a woman, a severely underweight person, but it's, it's not that simple, is it? So what are some of the things that we might not know, but we should know about eating disorders? So firstly, eating disorders are getting quite common in men too. Um, in the clinic, about 10% of the people we see are men. But we know that in the community, about 30% of cases are males. So the males often don't come forward as easily. And that may also be because they think of it as, as, a, as a female problem that they don't want to have. Perhaps also um, family, friends, doctors, the health service don't recognize it as much. So it's harder for, for males to, to get help. So that's one thing that's really important to bear in mind. And the other thing is that, as I said, people can be at seemingly normal weight or have a bigger body size and have very severe, serious eating disorder with a lot of distress, with a lot of impact on their health, on their quality of life. And that needs help as much as the people who have a much more visible um, eating disorder when they're underweight. Mm. But as you said, like much more difficult to spot, probably even for the person that is suffering as well. Absolutely. And what often gets in the way as well is that people often feel very ashamed. Um, and the shame and the sense of I'm out of control in some way. I, I want to be able to control my eating. Um, that really gets in the way of talking to other people because people think they, they won't be taken seriously. They don't know how to talk to their friends or their family. They think they will be laughed at or criticized and they don't know how to approach it with their GP. So in terms of how they arise, you touched on at the start about people starting to feel unhappy about their weight. I mentioned that the kind of like the peak onset in the introduction is between 15 and 25. But when do these um, signs typically start to come up and kind of where do they come from? Like, are there known mechanisms of what might lead to feeling unhappy about your weight and it getting worse? So 
when we think about what causes eating disorders or what puts people at risk, um, there is, importantly, there is not one single factor that's responsibility. But what we do know is that there is a genetic component to that. Um, so that's becoming clearer. Again, it's not a single gene. It's lots of different genes with small effects that contribute. It's also to do with the personal makeup of a person, what you are like as a person. Are you someone who is a bit more anxious than the average person? That might put you at risk. Are you someone who is um, very meticulous, conscientious and perfectionist in general as a person? That might also contribute to um, putting you more at risk. We also know that a number of environmental factors put people at risk. So for example, being bullied or teased about your weight, about your appearance, um, that would put you at risk. Um, and sometimes people in your family making relatively innocent comments about, do you really need to eat this? Um, haven't you had enough? And those kind of things can really be very upsetting to people and can sort of increase their risk for becoming preoccupied with weight, shape, and appearance. We also know that young people who, for example, um, are very interested in sports uh, or activities where how you look, how you appear is really important. So gymnastics, any, any of those kinds of sports, um, dance, arts, where, again, there is a lot of emphasis paid to appearance, that those might be um, contributing factors or might put you at risk if it's not handled well. I think it's really interesting to know or useful to know that it's such a wide range of factors that can contribute to an eating disorder arising, especially in that so many of them are like social factors, like comments that we might make um, or the situation that young person might be in, such as the sports example. So, yeah, I guess that's just really useful to be aware of so that we might be able to, you know, keep an eye out for any potential issues. Yeah. And there are lots of wider societal factors as well in terms of, um, you know, what is fashionable in terms of how you are meant to look. And that might not be what your body is designed to look like. So this is all very tricky. So what are some of the important research findings that we currently need to know about eating disorders? I think we need to know a lot more about eating disorders in um, young people of all social strata. So we need to know a lot more about um, eating disorders in men, but we also need to know much more about eating disorders in young people from different ethnic groups, ethnic minorities. We need to know more about eating disorders in young people um, of different genders, of different um, sexual orientation. Um, all these um, diverse groups of, of young people and what may make them at more risk of eating disorders because there are indicators that um, young people from what I broadly would call minoritized groups 
are at higher risk of, of eating disorders. And we need to understand those roots, different roots into eating disorders much better. And yeah. that will then also allow us to understand much better how we can help young people to get out of an eating disorder. Brilliant. So broadening our understanding to, to more diverse groups and really understanding all of young people's experiences rather than those that might be more comfortable with going to a clinic or going to a doctor and saying, I think I have an eating disorder, which I imagine is a very select group of young people. That's correct. We think that only about 20% of young people with eating disorders actually get, get any help and that 80% are out there and, and suffering in silence. And they may then come back many years later um, and get some help. So I think there's a lot to be done about figuring out what we can do, A, to improve help seeking, to understand the journeys of these young people and to um, do something about helping them to overcome their difficulties. That's such a that's such an extreme statistic. 20% is is so little in terms of um, actually coming forward and getting support. So it sounds like awareness, but then being able to follow that up with actual support is really important. Yeah. In each episode, we dive into the research behind a headline. And this week, we're going to discuss research that has been covered recently in the following news articles. The COVID-19 pandemic increased eating disorders among young people, but the signs aren't what parents might expect. The conversation, November 2021. Doctors warn of a tsunami of pandemic eating disorders. The Guardian, February 2022. So there was a paper published in July 2021 in the British Journal of Psychiatry on the incidence and occurrence of eating disorders during the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you just briefly summarise the main findings for us? This is a paper um, that used data mainly from the United States. It looked at over 5 million people who had health records um, in the United States, and it looked at how common eating disorders were in the years before the pandemic, three, four years before the pandemic, and then during the first year of the pandemic. And what the study found was that there was quite a substantial increase, a 15% increase in eating disorders during the first year of the pandemic. The main, that when they looked more closely at who was affected, what they found was that the rise um, affected mainly young women and mainly those aged 15 to 19. So that's also the peak age of onset for eating disorders in general. And what they also found was that it was mainly an increase in anorexia nervosa. And they also found, that's the last um, bit, that the people who presented with an eating disorder had more commonly suicidal thoughts and, and um, made suicide attempts than people presenting with an eating disorder before the pandemic. So those were the headlines. They did find an increase mainly in anorexia in teenage women. Something that the paper points out is that previous studies that have looked at incidences of eating disorders during the pandemic were not accurately reported. 
Um, what does this mean? So was there, what, what was the state of the research before this? Obviously, the pan- by the time this paper was published, the pandemic had been going for just over a year. In terms of research time, that's a very limited time. And until then, um, people had just put out surveys online, for example, to get to anyone who wanted to um, to answer online, have you got an eating disorder? Have your symptoms developed anew during the pandemic? So that previous studies really didn't look at representative samples, um, but what previous studies also found was that people said, yes, we are affected and we are affected more than we otherwise might have been. But that could have just been people's impression um, and could have been part of the sort of general suffering of, 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 of all of us in the pandemic, whereas this study um, had a much more systematic approach and was able to look at a really large representative sample and over um, times, clearly distinguishing between the time before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And do we know why this increase might have occurred? So we we can't really gleam it from this paper because they're reporting um, about the um, changes in incidence of eating disorders. They don't have any, you know, manipulations or questions about why. But is there research that has, you know, looked into this? There's little research about that, but we can nonetheless speculate because a we know that. We have all been very affected by the pandemic and the um, infection control measures, the lockdowns, and young people whose job it is to be out there and explore the world and meet with their friends were most severely affected. Age 15 to 19, that's the period when you do your GCSEs, your A-levels, where you might start university, all those normal milestones. And as we remember, there was all this uncertainty uh, around what would happen, would exams take place, etc. Schools were closed. So this young, this age group was affected with massive uncertainties. Young people who were at work were the first to be furloughed or to lose their jobs. So they had a big extra hit of uncertainty and distress during this period. The other thing that of course, affected all of us, but might affect, again, young people particularly, was that there was a lot in the media and on social media about making sure you eat properly during the pandemic, uh, making sure you exercise well, how to make most use of the time that you had to exercise, all of that. Um, And so, if you were a little bit vulnerable already, you might take this as encouragement to then maybe go on a diet or maybe go on a diet and a fairly sort of intense full-on exercise regime. And then before you know it, you've slipped into something that becomes an eating disorder. And so there was a sort of um, perfect storm of, of different things coming together that would have hit young people in particular. 
Yeah, an extremely difficult time um, for young people. And then, like you say, a, almost a perfect storm of all the factors that could that could have been an issue before were now concentrated and potentially worse at that time. What we also know is that at the beginning of the pandemic, you may remember there was all this panic about food and you were also only allowed to go shopping once a week. And we know that um, people who were already on a trajectory into an eating disorder, who, who already had first signs and symptoms, found this extremely difficult. So if your diet is very restricted and you want to eat only certain things, and then you think, oh my God, I can't, can't buy this, um, you have a problem. Um, if you are someone who is perhaps prone to episodes of overeating and losing control, if you have to buy food once a week, you may end up then eating more than you intend as, as a result and end up with difficulty. So there was all of that at the beginning of the pandemic as well. That then was not so much of a problem later on, but all these other difficulties were there. And a lot of the time, I would think that eating disorders would have developed as a way of coping with some of the restrictions of the pandemic, so often quite innocently, but then developing a life of their own. And that's very often how eating disorders develop, that people start with positive intentions, wanting to make their lives a bit better, and end up locked into something that becomes very compulsive and becomes a problem in its own right. As a researcher of early prevention and treatment of eating disorders, where ideally you want to intervene before the uh, issues have got to a certain stage, now that we're facing a wave of like serious cases following the COVID-19 pandemic, how might we start to address that? So that's a, a million dollar question that all the eating disorder services up and down the country are asking themselves. So we do have, we do all see a lot more young people presenting with anorexia nervosa and the ones who present with a more severe form need all the usual treatments and as quickly as we can give them. But then there is the question whether the ones who are on their way into an eating disorder, can we reach them with with online interventions? Can we reach them with education? Can we reach them with something that will prevent them go down um, developing a, a full-blown severe eating disorder? And so um, there are lots of research efforts underway in my own group, but I know other researchers all over the world are, are doing the same, trying to um, find ways of reaching out to people earlier to give them practical tips about help seeking, what they can do um, to not sink deeper into an eating disorder. Um, so there's one more kind of specific question I wanted to ask about this paper before we moved on. So the study found higher rates of suicide attempts in patients diagnosed with eating disorders during the pandemic compared to prior the, 
to the pandemic. But can we determine, can we conclude from this finding the relation, the direction of this relationship? I wouldn't say that we can, no. Um, what we know is that people with any eating disorder, and anorexia is no exception, have a lot of depression um, that occurs alongside the eating disorder. So when you develop an eating disorder, you will also have symptoms of depression and anxiety as part of that. And that just comes from messing with your eating and not feeding yourself properly. What we also know is that there are some people who have depression and anxiety before they develop an eating disorder, so that the eating disorder becomes a way of dealing with difficulties in mood. Um, so the two are quite closely linked. Depression, low mood can be a precursor of the eating disorder or depression and low mood can be a consequence of the eating disorder. And then the next step is part of depression is often that people will become suicidal and will um, have these thoughts and perhaps also make an attempt on, on, on their life. Um, what was interesting here is and important was that the death rate was not increased. So that's, that's good. So that would suggest that perhaps some of these suicide attempts um, may have been a bit of a, of a cry for, for help. And I think what it says to us is that we have to be aware of the risk of suicidality and potential for suicide attempts and the degree of desperation that, that young people with, with eating disorders may feel. But it doesn't tell us anything about the, the causality or, or how exactly the two things are, are related. I think it's just a really important thing to point out because there's lots of different factors that um, can contribute to causality and it can be in varying directions in this instance and what we need to remind ourselves when we see these kind of studies uh, reported in the news is that usually it's one piece to a very complicated puzzle so we need lots of different studies that are testing different relationships in different directions to understand the broad picture of how these things come come about yes Something that has kind of uh, been touched on, but many people during the pandemic, we all became more dependent on technology and social media. This was for communication, uh, but also for learning for young people and um, entertainment, etc. Um, and there's various news articles that have talked about um, a link between increased so social media use and increased eating disorders. Um, and they touch on poor body image and self-esteem, for example. So is there evidence um, that the increase in social media use during the COVID-19 pandemic did lead to increases in the incidence of eating disorders in young people, or is that not quite substantiated yet? 
I don't know of any research that specifically looks at this question. What I do know is that there's been quite a bit of research out there showing that social media, unhelpful social media use, and I will define what I mean by that, can make you very unhappy and can increase your preoccupation with your appearance and your body and can affect your eating negatively. So what do I mean by unhelpful social media use? Because as you say, social media can be used for many positive purposes as well to, to link up with your friends. But if you do a lot of unstructured browsing and you compare yourself against other people, if you spend a lot of time uploading selfies or doctoring your selfies, um, to make your appearance um, look different in some ways, um, you know, remove blemishes, etc. If you do mainly appearance-focused social media use, that can really contribute to um, getting you deeper into an eating disorder. It also depends on how much time you spend on social media and what's there is quite a lot of research on is um, where people have been shown different types of social media content um, and that gets experimentally manipulated, showing people stuff on um, with appearance focus or more neutral content and then measuring how happy or unhappy people are before and after and how much they eat. And you can see that it affects people. And people have also done a number of surveys in this area. Um, often when the surveys are done, it's people who already are a little bit on the trajectory of an eating disorder or a bit vulnerable who then um, get made even more unhappy through unhelpful social media use. So with this research, it's probably really important to look at the content. So it sounds like there's evidence for, you know, harmful negative content is um, associated with um, worse outcomes in terms of eating. It can be harmful content or it can be how you use the content because you mm -hmm. could be looking at pictures of all your friends and look at them in a particular way where you only compare yourself um, and in, in appearance term to your friends and other people. So even that, if, if, if that's the, the main thing you do, could be harmful and unhelpful to young people. Um, and I think what we need to get much better at is to teach young people to be more resilient about that and to think more about how they use social media, what it evokes in them, whether it makes them feel happier, whether it contributes to their lives in a positive way, or whether there are situations where it really makes them more miserable and leads them down the path of unhelpful behaviours. Yeah, I think there's definitely, there's often a conversation of, oh, young people are using too much social media and we need to reduce that. But actually, it should be more about harnessing like the positives. So we know that there are a lot of positives. And also, it's not something we can really change. Like lots of ages are dependent on digital tech in our jobs, in our lives. Yeah. So we need to kind of, yeah, like you say, 
harness the positives, but also teach young people about exposure to the potential dangers. Exactly. Yeah. A question that I um, has been in the back of my mind uh, the entire episode, but what are the key signs that we need to look for as friends and family of young people with potential eating disorders and how can we support them? I keep thinking of that statistic of, you know, 80% of young people um, suffering are not coming forward. So what, what can we do? So first of all, you were asking what might we notice? We might notice changes in the way the person eats, that they cut out certain foods um, or that they don't eat socially anymore, that they tell you when you're planning to go out, oh, I have already eaten and kind of seem to avoid social situations where eating is involved. Um, or if at school they spend all their time exercising through lunch, um, those sorts of things. Um, you might might notice or you might just notice other things like the person becoming unhappier becoming more preoccupied with their appearance asking for lots of reassurance about how they look and all of this together might make you think could this person have an eating disorder and I think the first thing as a friend or family might be to to try to take the person aside um, at a point when you can talk to them quietly and at a point when things are relatively relaxed, not to raise it in an argument or at a point when, when things are, are tense. And, and to, to be quite straightforward about it, to say, I am worried about you, I've noticed X, Y and Z, and do you think you might have an eating problem? Um, the other thing that I think is always really important is to get good information early on. And if people want to know more um, as families and friends, but also as, as those young people themselves, um, BEAT, the um, National Eating Disorder Charity, has a very, very good website um, where there is a lot of information uh, on what are the signs and symptoms of eating disorders, but also how to get help. And in particular, they have great advice on how to talk to your GP, because um, that's often quite a tricky thing to, to, to do for young people. And as family and friends, to be by the person's side and to go with them when they are having difficulty saying something about it is also really important so to go on that journey of you know let's find out a bit more have a look at this website um is there something there that resonates might be a, a, a good starting point it's so difficult to navigate isn't it but i think it's really useful to have some um tips on where to get started especially now that we seem to be becoming much more aware of issues that young people might face but then we often I feel like in mental health we don't always have the resources for the support to back that up so it's really good to know that there are um, for example the beat charity where you can go and seek advice especially in terms of the GP I think that's really great and kind of move forward together from there. 
and eating disorder services, whether it's for the for young people below the age of 18 or 18 upwards, are also very clued in to the need to intervene early and not to wait till eating disorders become more deep-rooted. So that's the other piece in there that um, eating disorder services will want to see people who, who come forward. So don't ignore the small signs, like you mentioned at the start. Absolutely, yeah. So do you have any recommendations for our listeners if they want to find out more? I would think go on our early intervention website, which is called freedfromed.co.uk, which has lots of resources for young people, for families on... Um, what are the early signs and symptoms of eating disorders and what you can do about them. It also has something on um, social media and eating disorders and quite a helpful guide and a short animated film. And we have lots of other resource leaflets on there about how to eat more healthily, um, all sorts of other things, how to... Um, face becoming a young adult um, and a range of things that might be relevant. Brilliant. That sounds great. Thank you. Um, So finally, the um, impossible question, the prevalence of eating disorders has increased since the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it science or fiction? It's definitely science. It's being seen all over the world. Usually the answer to that question is is very difficult because we we can never really make a conclusion. But yeah, in terms of prevalence, it's good to know that we have a strong idea of what that looks like. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I've really learned a lot and was very informative in terms of the research, but also how we can, you know, support each other as well. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ulrika for coming on to the podcast today. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us for updates and more information on Instagram and TikTok at Science or Fiction Pod and on Twitter at Sci or Fiction Pod. If you want to get in touch or you have a suggestion for a future topic, you can email us at info at scienceorfiction.co.uk. And as always, you can find the researchers' recommendations and links to mental health support at www.scienceorfiction.co.uk. Finally, I would like to thank King's College London and the Welcome Trust Public Engagement Grant for funding this series on youth mental health. Thank you to Afridin for helping to produce this episode. Thank you to Kit Studio for the branding and to Jamie Johnson for the music. See you next week.